Hey everybody, this week's summer short went a little long and then kept going. So we decided to split it up into two parts, but don't worry, we recorded an extra fun paper for you as well. Enjoy. of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, Pretty good, John. Just getting ready for school to start. Sigh deeply. (laughs) Yeah, it it is that time very quickly. Town's already getting busy again as undergraduates begin to move into their apartments and dorms uh, soon, I believe. Yes, that's, uh, that is also how I've noticed that school's about to start, too, is definitely the traffic. Um. Well, and, and the piles of TV stands in Walmart. <laughs> yeah, and those, like, really cheap mirrors and stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I'm so far removed from dorm life, which is an excellent thing, but... <laughs> It's very true. It's been quite a while. <laughs> well, tell me that you're doing something fun before school starts. I am. I actually have been uh, playing with a cheap toy drone that I got on eBay. <laughs> I said fun, not nerdy. <laughs> well, that's the same thing for me. <laughs> oh, that's true. Okay. Um, so you've actually been indulging your meteorological side with this drone, I understand from reading your blog, right? Yeah, so this thing was only about $55, so I'm not too upset about modifying it. And I actually have some sensors that I designed for another project that do temperature, pressure, humidity, all the standard meteorological variables. Uh, So I rigged it up with an SD card logger and some button batteries and double stick taped it to the drone and did some drone soundings. So, this works really well in the lower troposphere, (laughs) but these aren't going to replace weather balloons anytime soon, I'm guessing. No, especially not this one. You know, a lot of the other drones have decent range. This thing, about 50 meters, is really pushing it, Uh, and that's lateral and vertical, so... It's, uh, it's, a little, it's a little sketchy when you get very far away. Occasionally, it just decides to shut down and fall out of the sky. <laughs> well, I guess you only paid 50 bucks for it, so that's cool. Um, wow, that sounds really cool. Are they hard to drive? I've heard that they're really hard to navigate. Uh, this one can be a little bit tricky, especially because there is a camera, but it doesn't transmit back. It just records. Ah. So you have to remember that when it's coming towards you, left and right are reversed or maybe forward to it is not forward in your reference frame. It takes a little bit of getting used to. Uh, That sounds awesome. Obviously, I can think of a ton of geological uses for this, but we can discuss that later on after you've had a chance to try it out some more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And people should go take a look. We'll link the blog post in. I did get some data. Looks like a small inversion, surface inversion, because it was very calm and about sunset. So I got a nice 10 degrees per kilometer increase instead of decrease, like you would expect with the adiabatic lapse rate. Oh, that's Uh, awesome. And I do want to stress that (laughs) this is a hobby project, and I am nowhere near the FAA 400-foot ceiling for drone operations. I'm not making money off of it. I'm not using it for scientific research. So there's really no permitting required for this. (laughs) Got to cover your bases there. Um... (laughs) You just wanted to use it to say adiabatic on the radio. 
Yes, <laughs> and, you know, everybody's favorite superhero, Adia Batman. Exactly. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Well, as I said, I was getting ready for school, and so I think we all know my weakness. That's not beer, but I bought a new planner. <laughs> so I'm guessing that you're talking an actual dead tree planner. Well, of course. <laughs> what else would it be? <laughs> um, I'm even more embarrassed because it's pink. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the whole thing, the, the pages or just the cover? Uh, some of the pages, but definitely the cover. And it's got a sparkly little elastic that holds it together. And I hate to say it, I was sucked in by the cute little stickers that it came with. So... <laughs> I really feel but like... But you won't be able to lose it, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. I feel like I'm betraying my professional self. Um, but I just, I really love the layout. It was everything I wanted in a planner, plus cute stickers and a pink cover. So there we go. I did it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well, we'll have to see. I am still pushing more and more of my stuff into the digital world. So we'll have to compare notes in a couple months and see uh, how your paper notes and my digital notes are doing. Exactly. So I think, you know, I'm buying this paper planner because when, you know, an EMP goes off accidentally in the lab, everyone's calendars will be wiped, but I'll still, <laughs> I'll still have my schedule. But then I realized no one else will have their schedule. So it's probably pointless, but <laughs> I'm sticking to it for now. Yeah, you can get to all the meetings that no one else knows about. Right, exactly. <laughs> That's how I'm going to dominate the corporate ladder. Actually, uh, today my Apple Watch saved me because it tapped me on the wrist 15 minutes before a meeting that I totally forgot was scheduled. Wow. And I was downtown, so it gave me enough time to run back up. Whatever you need to do to justify that purchase, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, th this is... We have to get to our show topic because this is definitely not a summer short. But uh, <laughs> the coolest thing that has happened with the Apple Watch so far was probably two weeks ago now, coming up on it. Uh, it tapped and said, International Space Station at its brightest in three minutes. And it popped up a map of where it was going to be. So I walked outside and sure enough, watched a little bright dot cruise across the sky, knowing that uh, the tweets that I had seen from the space station we're coming, you know, from there with people flying over my head at five miles a second. So the future is pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah. My paper planner is not going to do that for me. <laughs> no, no, paper planner won't quite do that. But, <laughs> you know, speaking of space, you found a really cool article. Uh, yeah. So we talked about this when it was happening, and every nerd loves this stuff. But there's an article in EOS... So the product of AGU, the Earth and Space Science News, talking about Philae, right? So Philae was the little probe that got dropped onto a comet. It was an amazing uh, show of what we can do as humans. And the problem was when he got dropped down, he kind of fell over. And so people thought, well, crap, that's, that sucks. That's not what was supposed to happen. But it's a good thing because laying there sideways, Philae's found all this awesome stuff that maybe they wouldn't have seen, particularly a bunch of organic molecules that we never thought were on comets. Yeah, and actually, so we found the organic molecules. We found a, a harder surface than previously expected, but actually it had been predicted by some laboratory analog experiments. 
uh, in the the 90s uh, done in germany oh <laughs> that that was um that's interesting because you didn't expect it to have this sort of like silicates and these organics on top of a bedrock really that's more asteroid kind of stuff yeah well and they said i mean this is what we're saying hard but it's like pumice oh, right, hard right so yeah. in terms of comet traditional hard, hard geology it's still pretty soft yeah, comet hard <laughs> Um, yeah, but so Philae found these complex organic compounds um, that the spacecraft just measured while it was sitting there. Um, and four of these were not previously observed on a comet before. Um, so these are important in terms of biologics, right? And um, talking about origins of some of the organics in the whole solar system. It's could have come from comets, which we may not have thought was possible. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, a way to get material across a solar system really long distances, comets are pretty good transporter mechanisms, and occasionally they crash into things and will spread that material around. Exactly. It's just how we thought a bunch of the water got on Earth originally is through comets. So it could have been a bunch of water and a slurry full of stuff that life developed out of actually could have come from comets on four billion years ago. So that's really neat to have seen this. Yeah. So that's linked in the show notes. And there's a series of science papers that came out uh, from this mission. And they're still hoping to get some more data probably until October or November. And that's probably going to be it for the lander, unfortunately. Totally worth it, though enough stuff has come out of the Philae lander that it's just amazing and has advanced what we thought of the surface of a comet is. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, I mean, it's been on the surface of the comet about a year, I believe, and lasted a lot longer than they really had expected. And, you know, I think that's a good place to transition, at least the best segue I can come (laughs) up with, to today's topic of unexpected or catastrophic sedimentation. Right. So this is a graduate class I'm teaching. So it's my first graduate class to teach, and I'm really excited about it. It sort of mimics a class that I took a long time ago that talked about big sedimentation events. And so I titled it Catastrophic Sedimentation because, well, that's the interesting part of sedimentation, right? Everyone knows that I hate carbonates, and I always make fun of them because they're boring. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm going to talk about these, like, big events, and it's just what it sounds like. What is catastrophic sedimentation to you? Yeah, I mean, well, catastrophic sedimentation, you really think of these punctuated events where you get large uh, geologic formations that happen in a very short period of time as opposed to the slow settling of particles that you think is very boring. Uh, And that kind of brings up the whole idea of early on in geology, when we weren't really sure how things were working, uh, are things catastrophic and rapid, or are they slow and gradual? It turns out it's really a mix, right? Well, I think that's what today we're figuring out, is that it's really a mix. But catastrophism was sort of the order of the day for geologists. And this was first originated Uh, back when a bishop in the Anglican Church, so Bishop James Usher, which if you know anything about the history of geology, it's a big name because in the mid-1600s, Bishop Usher determined biblically the age of the earth. And he went back and traced all the lineage through the Bible and figured out that the earth was born, basically, in October 23rd at 9 a.m., I think he said, 4004 B.C., 
And Interesting. Exactly. So everyone believed he was such a good philosopher, and I use that word instead of scientist because that's what they were called back then, um, that this was actually even put into the margins of the Bible, that that was the date of the Earth's creation. Um, Bishop Usher also outlined that things like mountains, canyons, any kind of big landform uh, were formed by these unknowable quick cataclysms thus the name catastrophism and that's sort of how geology went along for a long time and these were unexplained processes no one even cared they were just unexplained and it was accepted that these things happened very quick because on the human time scale you probably don't you know see a lot of geology happening if you're not paying attention yeah and I will say, if mountains formed quickly, that would be a fascinating thing to see. <laughs> fascinating and super terrifying, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so it was in the late 1700s that James Hutton, also a name that most geologists are familiar with, uh, in 1795 published The Theory of the Earth. And in it, he outlines uniformitarianism, which is... That things happen now the way they have always happened and will always happen. Exactly. So every intro geology student learns the principles of uniformitarianism, and it's sort of the law of geology, right? Because we can't observe a river today and figure out what happened to rivers in the past if they weren't the same processes. So it's kind of the law by which we do geology. Um, Hutton's theory obviously challenged these catastrophists, there was a lot of infighting in the scientific community, as there is today, about uniformitarianism versus catastrophism, which was not helped by James Hutton's sort of inability to write well. And so there was a lot of fighting about it. But it seems like today people are adopting more of a mix of these two things is how the geologic record works. Yeah, and I think it's like everything. The more you look into it, the more you realize that it lies firmly in the gray area. <laughs> That's right. But this story really points out how important it is to be able to clearly communicate your work. Oh, yes. Um, I, I would point anyone that's interested into uh, Bill Bryson's book, A Brief History of Nearly Everything. And there's an awesome chapter on geology, and it sort of outlines these fights and talks about how, you know, contentious it was back then in a very entertaining way. <laughs> but um, anyway, the cool part, you know, uniformitarianism, stuff is happening gradually. It's happened the same as time has gone on versus catastrophism, which is really this belief that there was, you know, epic biblical floods is where it came from and epic mountain building things. But catastrophic sedimentation, I mean, that's stuff that we can look at today. And so there's a whole bunch of different deposits that we plan on talking about in this class, but that I sort of feel fall along catastrophic sedimentation. I mean, the first thing you have to do is define what is catastrophic. Yeah, and I mean, when I think of catastrophic, I think of I can observe it not only in my lifetime, but I can observe it in, you know, days or less. Exactly, in the length of time to not die from hunger or thirst, right? <laughs> Something like that. Right. <laughs> um, I know that paleontologists have a lot of arguments about this because you get into extinctions and gradual extinctions versus, you know, catastrophic extinctions. And that's something I cannot speak to, but I'm sure we will explore that later on in the course of 
time because it's a super interesting argument. But all we're going to talk about today are sort of these deposits and the big processes that produce catastrophic sedimentation because that's more what we know about. Right. And each one of these could easily be a show. So we're going to hit the high <laughs> points. Feel free to tell us all of the things that we missed. And we'll go back and do a show on the ones that have enough interest for sure. Oh, exactly. Um, I could have gone on and on with this outline. So we're just going to hit a few of the highlights, uh, just like John said, and talk about these. But please, you know, share with us anything that we're leaving out, because we'll certainly look for more of this stuff, either in the rock record or in the literature. But I guess we can start with the one that probably everyone thinks about right away. Well, most geologists think about right away, and that's turbidites. Yes, and these are a really interesting thing to think about and fun thing to look at in the lab. <laughs> oh, yeah. YouTube is rife with awesome turbidite experiments. Um, I think we have a link to one of them. Um, but these turbidites are just, layman's terms, underwater landslides. Yeah, if you think about it, you have something denser than its surroundings, so it's going to flow much like heavy rock and mud material would flow in what is a not very dense fluid air. So it looks pretty much the same. Uh, it does. Um, we have, so these turbidites are density flow, not tractional or frictional, but density related. And we have the same things in atmospheric science too. You can get density currents that work their way down the east side of the Rockies with cold air flowing downhill. Turbidites are the same stuff, except for here we have sedimentation so sediments being deposited um the most famous thing about turbidites are of course bauma sequences yes so bauma sequences and cyclicity interesting thing to talk about <laughs> so bauma was a geologist who in 1962 published these cycles that he saw and they're finding upward cycles that are these packages and they occur cyclically in places, obviously, in uh, sub-aerial deposits. And so what caused them? Well, some of the same processes that produce landslides on land create these turbidites. Frequently earthquakes, volcanoes, big storms, which we both love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you think of cyclic processes, you instantly think... Uh, you know, repeating earthquakes with hundreds to thousands of year periods or volcanic eruptions. The, the storms maybe not quite so periodic, but I suppose over you know long time scales they would come out to roughly periodic. Right, exactly. They could big storms would probably produce a turbidite, uh, maybe two. But these volcanoes and earthquakes are really the cyclical nature. Um, having spent time in the Pacific Northwest in July, I'm obviously much more interested in that geology than I ever was before, having not been there. Um, and a lot of these cyclical turbidite deposits are seen off of the Cascadian subduction zone. And they can be linked very, I mean, correlated exactly with, say, Mount Mazama's eruption, which is the volcano that is Crater Lake now, um, as, long, as well as the cyclicity of the earthquakes with ruptures along the CSZ. Right. Well, and that's how, you know, we get estimates of both the magnitude and age is by doing this relative dating. So that's how we know that maybe the last, what we think was a full rupture of the subduction zone was about 600 years ago. Exactly. Um, and then you see smaller cyclicity 
of these, maybe magnitude eights or less. Um, this is all um, research that's been done at Oregon State. Goldfinger et al. has some really cool pictures of sediment cores showing these, both these three to 400 year cycles and these five to 600 year cycles of movement along the CSD that have produced turbidites in these canyons just over and over and over again. Yeah, and it is not often that we get to think about uh, geologic processes occurring on hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, repeating on hundreds of years. Exactly. Well, um, <laughs> repeating enough that we're going to see one of those turbidites form probably sometime soon, because I know that we're a little overdue for a big earthquake up there. Um. Well, yeah. And I mean, things like this, too, are a large hazard to underwater opera- operations, uh, you know, telecommunications cables, uh, subsurface, you know, reconnaissance, military intelligence, that kind of thing. Uh, anything that's on the ocean floor, these could probably destroy it. Right. And I mean, that's a classic story about sort of the first occurrence of a turbidite that was recorded, and it was the breaking of the transatlantic cables, telegraph cables, and they were broken sequentially. And then later on, they figured out that that was the actual turbidite moving at outrageous speeds down the shelf that sequentially broke these telegraph cables. And that's how they figured out that these processes were occurring at all. Yeah, well, and in the YouTube video that we have linked in the show notes, they actually have markers on the side of the tank. And you can get a pretty good estimate. They may actually say in the comments, if not, you could probably ask them uh, how far apart those markers are, but you can get a pretty good idea of the velocity. And it's fast, even in a lab scale. Exactly. And it also shows you how strong, basically, the sediments within these density currents are. There's a lot of internal strength within these flows. And we'll talk sort of about the process of how that occurs here in a minute. Um, But the strength of those to rupture a telegraph cable, I mean, you think of a cable on the ocean floor and that sediment would just flow over it, but it's moving so fast and it's so thick that it does have the power to disrupt that. And what's cool about turbidites is there are a lot of deposits of these all over the world that you can go see. There are some really great ones, Italy, Spain, and back in your neck of the woods too, I think. Yeah, yeah, there's supposed to be a few in Arkansas, though. I have never gone to those deposits. I will say they're not as impressive as the pictures of the ones from Spain or California, but <laughs> but they are there. So, you know, if you want to see your own Bauma sequences, it's not common to get the whole sequence preserved because obviously if you have these cyclical events coming through, you're not, the next turbidite's going to wipe out some of the turbidite below it. But they're really neat, um, and I really highly encourage you to go look at those YouTube videos because you can spend hours watching <laughs> sediment, dirt flow in a tank, essentially, in the lab. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you'll, uh, you'll go to Home Depot and get some PVC pipe <laughs> and plexiglass after watching exactly. these. Exactly. I think we have a tank fishing around the basement somewhere that is built for turbidite experiments. We'll see if we can get that going and get some video on it. Oh, yeah, I think I actually remember that tank had a uh, sloped slope starting rate yeah, for the sediments as we well. We used to just yep. keep rocks in it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's got its own space now, so hopefully we'll get that going. Yeah, and well, I think that's a good place because we're going to have to make this a two-part show. It's just getting uh, too long, so we should go to our first Fun Paper Friday. And what did you find for us this week, Shannon? Well, in anticipation of next week's show, I thought that we would talk about Meteor Crater because... Meteorite impacts are 
obviously catastrophic sedimentation. So this is an old paper, 1997, uh, by David Kring, who, if you're familiar with meteor impact craters in general, he's kind of one of the grandfathers of meteor science. And the paper is called Air Blast Produced by the Meteor Crater Impact Event and a Reconstruction of the Affected Environment. Yeah, and this paper paints a vivid picture <laughs> it does. of what happens. <laughs> so in addition to sort of discussing Meteor Crater itself, he makes a really good point. Um, Meteor Crater is a smallish, a uh, little over a kilometer diameter impact crater in northern Arizona. Um, and he says the importance of looking at these small and relatively young, it's only about 50,000 years old, these small impact craters is because they happen a lot more frequently. And back in the late 90s, there was a lot of talk about, you know, what did the Chicxulub crater, the big one at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, what did it actually do to the environment? And so he, just like you said, John, paints a very vivid picture. Because 50,000 years ago, there were a lot of animals hanging out, um, particularly in this part of northern Arizona, which was probably forested a little more than it is now. And they would have died a horrific death, according to this paper. <laughs> yeah, and just, I mean, hurricane force winds up to 40 kilometers away, but and, winds exceeding Mach 2, very close to the impact. I, and this is a little impact crater. Like, the impact, the impactor is not very large at all, and it's only a kilometer across. Like, we're not talking about big impacts that develop peak ring structures or massive amounts of breaches created that we'll talk about in the next show. I mean, this thing is small, 40 miles an hour or 40 mi kilometers away, hurricane force winds, but that's not yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, it descended through the entire atmosphere in less than 30 seconds. Exactly. And so once it hit the surface, um, there was obviously some catastrophic sedimentation. I won't ruin that for what we're going to talk about next week. <laughs> but um, a lot of what this paper talks about is just the immediate environmental effects of something coming in this quickly and hitting so hard. And it talks in detail, obviously, is about the air blast. So the shock wave created from this really fast bolide coming in and how the shock wave itself basically killed all the animals in the surrounding area by compressing their internal organs. <laughs> yeah, and you know, there's not a ton of data from large impact events since we haven't really seen that many since we've been here. Of course, there was a Tunguska event and a few of those, but we do have data from a very close analog, and that's because we detonated lots of nukes. Exactly. Um, and a lot of that information, obviously, we'll probably never see, but we do know how much sediment you can expect to aerosolize based on these nuclear events, you know, obviously how big the holes are and what those shockwaves feel like. And these are pretty frequent events in terms of, it says every 1600 years or so, we get hit by a meteorite the size of the one that created Meteor Crater every 6,000 years, if you're just talking about continental. Um, so this could have a significant effect over time. Yeah, and I mean, you see the numbers in here saying that you've got pressure waves of a few PSI, and that doesn't seem like much. 
But when you think about it, that's pounds per square inch. So if you have a cinder block wall that's up to 12 inches thick, somewhere in the neighborhood of about four or five PSI is plenty to shatter it. Exactly. And so if you're talking about your internal organs of these animals that were grazing nearby, that's easily enough to cause massive devastation. Um, In addition to that, like I said, so 50,000 years ago, they think there was probably a lot more forestation. And so you've instantly downed all these trees, hurricane force winds, 40 kilometer radius, at least. So there's all those trees gone. (laughs) Well, and the scary thing was, you know, they said that the, what we learned from the nuclear program was there's an optimum height to detonate your weapon at to create the biggest pressure wave and the most destruction. And this impactor actually didn't detonate like some of the others have in the atmosphere. It actually just came down and slammed into the ground. Mm-hmm. So the 20 to 40 uh, megaton explosion that it was equivalent to mm-hmm. could have been a lot worse. <laughs> right. And to think about you know these nuclear tests that went on and their analogs to this meteor crater, I mean, you think about a more populated area than, say, northern Arizona or the desert where these uh, nuclear tests were taken out. I mean, Meteor Crater, by this paper's estimation, you know, killed a lot of animals and a lot of trees. So just think of what would happen in a more populated area, right? Yeah, and that's going to lead in really well to what we talk about when we talk about bolide impacts in the second part of this show, because we'll actually talk about some of these features. So you're going to want to tune in next week to hear all about that. But this fun paper was a really nice tie-in to it. I was glad that you found it. Uh, Yes, it's always been one of my favorites since my uh, graduate student days. So I highly encourage anyone to read it. Um, It's super informative on the power of even these small cataclysmic disasters that could happen here on planet Earth. And like I said, remember, this one's a teeny tiny one, so... Think about how big Chicxulub or any other of those large-scale vertifort impact events would have been. is mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> but, well, if you have any pictures of your favorite meteorite impact or any that you saw during the recent meteor shower, <laughs> you can send those to us along with any comments about the show. Uh, we'd also appreciate it if you took a few minutes and went on iTunes and rated the show because that helps other people that would like it find us as well. So, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us if they want to drop us a line? As always, you can email us any of your pictures or comments to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Leave us an audio comment or otherwise on our website, www.don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, and part two of this very long summer short, <laughs> remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.